Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. Folks, the views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. So today, uh, I am uh, so happy to uh, have uh, Stuart Levine uh, on the show with us. Uh, Stuart uh, has held numerous uh, physician executive roles in health plans, HMOs, and physician groups over the years. Uh, most notable for me was his role as the Chief Innovation and Clinical Care Officer at Blue Shield, California, where he was responsible for the ACO initiative statewide. He is currently the Chief Medical and Innovation Officer for Agilon Health. It's a physician group and IPA platform providing integrated and coordinated care in multiple geographies. He's also the CEO and President of Medical Innovations, a healthcare consulting firm, and he's the Chief Physician Advisor to Google Health Research. He's an operating advisor to some of the largest and most successful private equity firms in healthcare. Uh, Stuart also has a very impressive academic uh, background. Uh, he's been an assistant professor of internal medicine and psychiatry at the uh, University of California, LA, uh, since 1992, as well as uh, their resident expert on population health. He was recently appointed assistant clinical professor of internal medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine and has been active in their teaching programs uh, in population health and the future of medicine since uh, 2014. Stewart serves on a number of boards uh, for healthcare companies, including uh, being the president of the board of California Healthcare Foundation Leadership Alumni Program and the Partners of Care Foundation. Uh, folks, I could go on and on, but um, we only have uh, 45 minutes or so to really uh, uh, gain some wisdom from Stuart. So, uh, Stuart, I, I know you're sitting, uh, I, I believe, in California, and you said something about overlooking the ocean. How, how are you, and how's the weather out there? paradise uh, <laughs> and we just hope the Dodgers win tonight oh yes <laughs> I, I, my, I can tell you my family's going to be watching that show uh, yeah well, I have season tickets so uh, I almost flew to Houston oh wow wow that's uh, that's great to hear so um, so why don't we dive in because I, I you know Stuart I, I have heard you uh, speak uh, once and I've looked at some of the work that you've written up and um, you, you are clearly a uh, just your your experience and background uh, both in clinical innovation and clinical care redesign and population health and value-based and risk-based uh, I mean you just you really uh, have just an amazing spread of experience and knowledge and skill so I, I want to dive in with you what um, what let's start with this what do you see as, uh, as, as, as an expert and professor in population health? And what do you see as some of the core issues and challenges in healthcare uh, that, that you are attempting to solve or resolve or get us past? Uh, well, thank you very much. I want to start out by thank you tremendously for having me on the program and your podcast. It's really a privilege and an honor, and, and especially f uh, to be able to speak with you with with the esteemed background and, and career you've had. So thank you from the onset. Um, to, to answer your question, I think there's a couple of things that uh, come to mind. Uh, first is that <clears throat> there's so many silos in healthcare, and even with the um, advent of the ACA, which was really meant to extend healthcare to people who didn't have it and try to develop a uniform healthcare delivery system in the United States, there's so many vested interests and, and and sort of a land grab to say, yes, we want to make it better, but as long as we stay okay, that I think is one of the biggest dilemmas. And, and it's inherently, therefore, caused people to not uh, work together, not reach across the aisle, as they may say in politics, and, and think about the entire integrated delivery system and how it's relevant to patients and their families and also to make the practice of medicine joyful for physicians, especially primary care physicians. And as Sharp Healthcare says in Southern California, happy doctors make happy patients. 
and, and I don't think we've really concentrated sufficiently on what it takes to bring the joy back to the practice of medicine and to focus back to the most important people in, in the practice of medicine, patients and their families. That's, um, that's, a, that's a big set of problems, Stuart. You know, one, one, of, the, one of the things I, I, I did not mention uh, to the audience is you originally your training was actually in psychiatry. And one of your first uh, physician executive roles was, in fact, um, uh, as CEO of PsychCare Alliance, where you grew that to be uh, the largest behavioral health medical group in the United States, and you were doing full risk and collaborative behavioral health care. So I, I can see how, you know, this issue of silos um, uh, is one that sort of captured you. So how, and, and I've heard you talk about some of the models of population health that you've developed over the years and, and honed. Um, tell me what you see as uh, some of the solution sets that, you know, if you, if, you know, if the president came to you or the head of CMS came to you, and for all I know, they have come to you, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. What, what, what solution sets, what are the big ticket items you would start moving us towards? Well, first and foremost, uh, the most important thing is the issue around risk and taking risk. Um, and one of the things I learned from one of the greatest mentors of my life, Bob Margolis, and Matthew Maziozny, his CFO partner uh, at Healthcare Partners, was the issue around taking global capitation or global risk to actually take care of patients. And while and Healthcare Partners was a completely integrated, coordinated care system that was centered around uh, managed care, but not managed care, the insurance product, and not managed care the way Michael Moore portrayed in the movie, but managing care as defined as taking care of everybody like they're your family member and you're writing the check. Making it really personal, but fiscally and mostly quality responsible, and taking that stewardship seriously. So um, one of the dilemmas is that the healthcare dollar goes through so many hands and nobody really takes the penultimate responsibility to reach the quadruple aim. Better quality care, lower total cost, more engaged patients, and happier physicians. And when I use physicians, I don't just mean physicians, I mean the healthcare professionals caring for patients and their families. Hospitalization is inherently a failure, a failure of the system. And if we don't see the hospital as an expense center to the healthcare delivery system, and that, yes, some people are going to have to go into a hospital, but it is the exception, not the rule. It's the place where you have no other alternative to render care, not the best place to render care. You'll never get to goal. What that means is truly investing in an integrated delivery system, and that's very expensive, but a heck of a lot less than if people get admitted to a hospital. So it means building systems of care to reward the PCPs that are wonderful and build care systems to take care of the very complex patients for the PCPs that just aren't up to the task of taking care of those complex patients. And building a system of care that ensures that every patient gets the choice of their own primary care doctor, but nobody falls through the cracks. And that's a complex um, uh, uh, task. That's a complex matrix or algorithm to be able to adhere to. It also mandates that you follow evidence-based medicine, the real science of medicine, but you also concentrate heavily on um, the social determinants of care, um, the needs of the patient, the family, and the community, and, and especially around the engagement with the patient, the, the special engagement between the physician and the patient, that that, uh, that, that um, appointment is very heavily concentrated on the needs of that human being and, and not the needs of the EMR and not the needs of the tasks that, that uh, precede or follow that appointment. Boy, Stuart, I, I think you, uh, you really, that was one of the most comprehensive answers I've, I've heard to uh, this sort of question in terms of what to do. And 
you you know you just outlined i think of a full semester course in in your in your few statements there so you start with just just to make you know make sure i understand it and track you start with the the notion that you have to align the clinical care with payment and the way the payment is structured now like you say it's just going through so many different hands um, that it, it, it doesn't make sense because it doesn't allow for real stewardship and accountability. And so give the risk and give the payment of risk to an entity that can manage it and, uh, and attach appropriate care to it. So that was number one. Number two, you really talked about this idea of uh, sort of recentering healthcare from the hospital as the core to really uh, the primary care uh, as the core, and I want to ask you about that. But uh, you say you know reward the primary care physicians, but also for the more complex patients, and these are the high cost. And we know you know from the Pareto rule and your experience, I'm sure you you know these numbers extremely well. That a very very small percentage of people make up the large percentage of the costs, and also the tremendous morbidity and so on. So manage them in a different way. And I'm curious as to how you would take uh, that segment of the population and what kind of models you would uh, carry, you would uh, deploy for them. And then you talk about using evidence-based medicine. And, and I love the fact that you brought in the social determinants of health because, you know, one of my thesis is that we used to equate uh, clinical care to health care, but I think the formula is more like health care is equal to clinical care plus social determinants of health. And, um, and, and also what you talked about was really engaging the patient as a partner in their own health care. So, boy, you said a lot. Um, I would like to focus on this whole issue of, the, the, of, of making primary care a more central part of care, because to me it does seem as though it's still an addendum to uh, the vast majority of integrated delivery network care. That's just the way it seems to me. I'm curious about your perspective and how you would change that, and also how you would tell the primary care doctors that there's going to be a different way of taking care of complex patients. So I know I've asked you a lot, but I'm, I'm just so excited to hear your thoughts. Sure. So I think, let me try to take it in an organized approach. Um, I think of healthcare as the six pillars of care. Uh, and I'll go through each of them and then we'll dive into what we mean by each. Um, the six pillars of care include primary care. Primary care has evolved into someone who's simply just a gatekeeper to access other parts of the healthcare system rather than truly the point guard or the center of the universe for that patient and their family and the healthcare system. And I think that primary care, because of the way it's been paid, and because of the way they've been rewarded has not had sufficient time <clears throat> to be able to spend with patients and their families to really be able to address their needs. You know, primary care appointments generally are seven to 10 minutes instead. Um, sorry, I tried for the delay. I thought that the computer went blank. Um, uh, rather than 20 to 30. And it's, and the primary care doctor is so involved in the EMR, they hardly know that the patient is in the room. Um, that primary care patient needs to understand how to man manage a panel of patients and get paid for panel management for a population. And that population has to be the right size and manageable. Generally, it's around 1,700 commercial equivalents. So it doesn't mean you're carrying panels of 3,000 where you can't really understand nor even remember many of your patients. They have to be paid both for the visit to the patient as well as a panel management fee to take care of the whole patient population. And then in addition, <clears throat> they need to be paid and, and, and rewarded for the results and results that they can attain, quality results, emergency room visit reduction results, admission to hospital results and reduction of those admissions and things like that. And in a way that's digestible and then also adjusted for how chronically complex their patient population is. So that's pillar one. Pillar two is around specialty care. And people in the United States generally equivocate specialty care with the better care. Instead of specialty care as collaborators and supporters of primary care, which is a really, really different concept. 
And those people, those patients with very, very, very complex diseases may be chronically followed by specialists, but in general, they should be collaborators and supporters of primary care. And, and more, more importantly than even primary care should be paid for panel management, for managing a population of patients. And you don't need as many specialists as we have. Right now in the United States, the number of specialists equal the number of primary care doctors when it should be, you know, a very, very different ratio. In that scenario where specialists are paid for panel management, they actually can afford to pay the very best specialists to think and, 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 uh, and consult, not necessarily just to do. And so you get the best specialists participating in integrated care systems, not the worst. People generally think that specialists in managed, managed delivery systems are just the people who can't get a job anywhere else. And it's frankly just the opposite. The third pillar of care is advanced facility care. And that has less to do with the facility than the practitioners working in that facility. So it's hospitalists that are not just doing shift work, that are not just doing volume work but are seeing only 12 patients a day and, and are really spending significant time with those patients and their families. And, and their, the admission of that patient is a failure, but the readmission of that patient is even more of a failure. So they're concentrating on coordinating the care in that hospital, getting the patient out as quickly as possible because patients get better care out of the hospital than in if they can be managed that way. And working hand in hand with a care transitions nurse, a care manager that's not concentrating on utilization management and calling in authorizations to insurance companies, but really working with the patient and the hospitalist as their coach, advocate, coordinator of what to do afterwards and how to prevent this from happening in the future and ensuring readmission prevention. That also includes somebody working in a SNF who's a hospitalist, who's a high-grade, sophisticated internist not a shift worker, not a nursing home doctor, that really is giving highly qualified care in a just lower level of set, a lower level of care. Um, the fourth pillar of care is a home visit program. And this is where patients get all of their care at home. With a patient-defined medical care, medical home is their house, or whatever is the equivalent of their house. So that could be their home, that could be an adult day living center, uh, an adult uh, a retirement center. That could be a long-term care facility. That could be a dialysis center. But it's centering the care wherever the patient is spending a, a predominant amount of time where they're delivering care in, in a coordinated fashion with social workers, nurse practitioners, and, and nurse care managers overseen by physicians for the sickest of the sick. Generally, 20% of seniors is driving 80% of cost, 5% of commercial and Medicaid patients is driving 80% of the cost, and the top 5% risk of seniors and the top 1% to 2% risk of commercial and Medicaid patients are the people that are getting their care in a home visit program. That's not home health nursing. That's all their care at home. The fifth pillar of care is the high-risk clinic. And that's a place where there's really team care. This is what primary care medical homes really should be about. It's not a place where people just need to get flu vaccines or simple blood pressure is controlled, but it's for those next six to eight to 10% of the patients who need coordinated care, who need group visits to, to help them monitor and titrate their medicines and are treated by a team of physicians, social workers, nurse practitioners, nurse care managers, health coaches and health advocates and some community health workers to treat, again, the sickest of the sick who are not getting care at home and are seen outside primary care. And then the last pillar of care is care management. And care management is the, probably the most misunderstood and underappreciated part of care, treating that last 10% of high-risk patients and seniors and the last 3 to 4% of commercial and Medicaid patients where there's a nurse and, and, and a nurse care manager working with that patient to support and supplement the care they're getting in primary care, oftentimes in the primary care clinic or, or at their house or one-to-one -one on the telephone to help them navigate their way through the healthcare system and ensure uh, treatment adherence, solving of, of social dilemmas, treating of their behavioral health issues, and preventing the rising risk into that higher risk population. And these 
pieces or these pillars work together as a coordinated fabric. And one of the most important things is that if you don't have all six pillars, you will fail. And you're better off getting a B or B plus to have all of the pieces or the entire fabric working together because that will deliver the quality of care that you need and the outcomes that you want and a reduction in unnecessary hospitalizations to make this work. But it also takes significant investment. So the extensivist program that we talk about, including hospitalists and sniffers and care transitions and home visits and care management and high-risk clinics, generally is a fairly expense-intensive uh, form of care, but far, far, far less than the amount that you'd spend on hospitalization. That trade-off of reduced unnecessary hospitalization and emergency room visits or our failures is then invested in this proactive care. So in the senior population, you'd be spending approximately $60 per member per month to build this extensivist model, but in exchange for $100 or $200 in unnecessary hospitalizations or unnecessary hospital costs per member per month. Boy, you, you've you've really you've got this model down down to the dollar per member per month. Um, so 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 pillar number four, five, six, to me sound um, they're they're relatively new and like you say, there there's where the money has to be spent in order to uh, really be proactive and preventive. Um, number four, the the home visit program. So you were saying, the, what differentiates that between from the high-risk clinic? Uh, who, who would go into the high-risk clinic versus being in the home visit program? Um, so that's a wonderful and, and, and really excellent question. Part of it is what the patient will accept or the patient and the family will accept because just like with anything in any health challenge, you know, the patient has to be ready to accept that engagement and that advocacy and that partnership for it to work. So the, if you're going to be purely um, algorithmic and statistical, the top 5% of seniors, the top 1% to 2% of commercial and Medicaid patients are seen at home and because the home visit program is more intensive and more expensive and therefore the cost offset to make it financially feasible as well as rendering excellent quality, which is even more important than financially feasible, but you must have both in today's healthcare delivery system, has to concentrate on the most complex and most costly patient for the more intensive intervention. Um, sometimes patients and their families just don't want people coming into their home, though, and then the high-risk clinic it serves as its alternative. Similarly, sometimes patients will just not want to come into a clinic. They determine by by voting with their feet that they determine where they want to get care. That chronically mentally ill homeless patient may want to get their care under a bridge. And if that's where they so choose to have their care, but it's better than a hospitalization, better than a forced um, uh, um, uh, stay in a psychiatric hospital, you see them where they define their own medical home because that's part of the partnership. And through that partnership, you tend to then get them to be more willing to negotiate a different place of care based on what their needs are and what they're willing to accept. Uh, the high-risk clinic would be that patient that is um, uh, not quite as intensely sick as the person person in a home in a home visit, but also that patient who may need multiple people on the team working with them versus the home visit program with primarily a nurse practitioner and social worker with some nurse care management. So. In the high-risk clinic, you're going to have physical therapy. You're going to have specialists that come in on certain days, neurologists and cardiologists to work with patients. And so that, that, that patient who needs a more of a team-oriented care will be coming into the high-risk clinic. No, thank you. That's actually helpful. How does uh, the social determinants of health and the patient engagement, how does this factor into your model? So um, let's start with patient engagement. Um, I think that this is really perhaps the most crucial part of care. Um, I'm going to speak about it and then give a couple of personal examples if that's, our, if, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, currently, we do patient engagement in a lot of funny ways like apps on phones and you know avatars and things like that. And, and one has to wonder if we're doing that because that's how the current social system and people want it or because 
the healthcare delivery system as it is is so unsatisfactory to patients and their families that that's their only alternative to get the satisfaction. And I think of my wife, who's an obstetrician gynecologist, who was a nurse prior to that. And, and to be honest, she's my hero in healthcare, Donna Ritchie. She was found by Stanford to be the highest quality, lowest cost obstetrician in the United States. And, and part of what drove that was her preponderantly low C-section rate of about 12.8%. Wow. The specialness that she had not only had to do with the 21,000 babies that she delivered in her career and the immense experience and her devotion to practicing evidence-based medicine, but also this incredible engagement and personal nature of the relationship. Every new OB visits at least an hour. And in that first OB visit, she deter she she and her patient determine what's going to happen over that next nine months and what that compact is of how to work together. And it doesn't matter what socioeconomic class they come from, what nationality, what language they speak, whether they're healthy, whether they're not healthy, whether they're from the beach, whether they're from Compton. Uh, she, you know, that, that, that engagement is still the same. And it's what makes it so incredibly special. And her follow-up visits are, are longer as well because she wants to really understand and engage with that patient and their family, what's important to them. So it's no accident that her C-section rate is, is very low, that, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't have legal issues with patients and malpractice suits because they know that she is truly engaged with them as a human being and, and, and that they really care in a really significant way. And, and she in many ways is my guiding light to emulate where medicine needs to go and, and where we as physicians need to channel our energy. Uh, yeah, you know, if you if you had a seven minute OB visit, maybe you'd go to the new OB app that you can get on 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 um, uh, iTunes. But is that what people really want? Um, yes, you need technology. Yes, you need risk stratification. Yes, you need uh, sophisticated IT and information. But do you have that to substitute for a broken healthcare system, or do you have to re-engineer and fix the broken healthcare system? and then build IT to support that. And, and that's a vast difference, and I think that that's really important. I would suggest it's the second, not the first. The second personal example I'm gonna use is about 10 months ago, I had my first real interaction with the healthcare system. I had an abdominal hernia, and I went into a local hospital uh, for abdominal hernia repair. And um, my experience was um, interesting. Um, I was interviewed by four nurses upon coming in. I had been the first CMO of that hospital and was well-known. And, and um, uh, my, myself, my family, well-known at the hospital. Four nurses asked me the same questions, all staring at Epic. And yet the fourth nurse asked me whether what kind of hernia repair. Did I know I was going to have an inguinal hernia, not abdominal hernia repair? And I couldn't understand that. Um, at the end of the surgery, which went way longer than it was supposed to because of a little bit of a, uh, a complication, um, the choice of how to get home was presented to me, and my wife was still seeing patients. So I said, well, let her finish seeing patients. I was in pain, but you know, it was more important for her to take care of her patients than to bring me home. Well, she had a little Lexus sports coupe, and all of a sudden I realized, how am I going to get into that little car because I couldn't even get out of a gurney? And they said, well, if you want to stay in the hospital overnight, we could do that so you don't have to worry about it. And and they were really well-intended. They were really focusing on trying to make me comfortable, but it was sort of the wrong answer. The, the real answer was, you know, how do we come up with alternative um, uh, uh, transportation for you? So thank God my wife's parents have a Toyota minivan, and I got into that, and I hobbled my way home. Uh, the, the third incident post-surgically happened when I got home and they said, just have ice chips. And all of a sudden at 10.30 at night, I was not able to pee very well. And my wife looked at me and said, what kind of dumb doctor are you? Why haven't you been drinking more liquids? Well, you know, you've had this major abdominal surgery, went four hours, and you start drinking liquids at 10.30 at night. And what do you have to do? But you have to go to the bathroom. Well, you go to the bathroom an hour later, an hour later, an hour later, and increasingly you're having more and more pain. And you don't really know how to take the pain meds, even though I ran a chronic pain clinic for 10 years. But you're a patient now. You're not a doctor. And 
through, and, and I could go on and on, but any one of these instances or how to monitor the pain meds over a couple of days and then get off of them and what do you do about constipation and all those things, even as a learned physician, even as a, as a, as a husband of a rock star wife doctor, it was really hard to navigate my way through this experience. And if I was a, just a regular patient, I would have gone to the emergency room at least three or four times during this. To no fault of anybody, but we don't think about the important stuff to that patient and that experience. And it made me think about what I do as, quote, a population health expert in a very different and a very personal way about what we're doing for our patients. You know, I'm very lucky to be the chief medical officer and medical and innovation officer of Agilon, which is this amazing new company that I helped co-found with a, a brilliant, brilliant finance person, Ravi Sachdev from Clayton Dublin and Rice, who helped finance it, and Ron Kurbitz, who's the CEO. And, you know, what we're doing is we're doing global capitation, full risk, capitated managed care for the most needy, for the Medicaid patient, for the seniors and pers persons with disability patient, for the Medicare patient, Medicare Advantage patient, and dual eligibles. And it makes you start to think about how to take care of these patients in such a, in such a personal way that you're really concerned. This is where it gets down to your second part of your question, which is um, social determinants. Social determinants become a really big uh, catchphrase now, but it's not clear to me whether people really understand it, just like I'm not sure how much people really understand population health. When I think about social determinants, first you think, I think as a psychiatrist, about all those behavioral health issues and how they can't be siloed into mental health. That mental health needs to be provided within primary care, whether that be for um, primary care depression or anxiety or chemical dependencies, either alcohol or things that we're causing ourselves as prescribers of these many uh, drugs causing the opiate crisis now, or whether that become even for the chronically mentally ill. And even for those chronically mentally ill, do they really want to come see a psychiatrist or do they really want to come see a primary care doctor supported by behavioral health? And so I would like to first suggest that the social determinants of healthcare is ensuring that all of mental health gets delivered within primary care and only the exception, only the failure of that goes to mental health as we know it, just like the failure goes to the hospital. Then it gets down to a second, much deeper and more important level, which is the social determinants. Food, housing, uh, stress at home, caretaking, um, uh, uh, financial stability, those things that in many ways drive hospitalizations and, and, and complications in taking care of patients and their families as much, of, if not more, than anything else. And I think there are two dilemmas. One is the siloed of dollars, which doesn't really allow healthcare to reach out and redirect dollars in the right way to solve those problems that would solve in many ways many of the health issues. And, and secondly, is the issue of that we don't have very good data collection to even know what those issues are, either in the, in, in the interview with, between physicians and patients or in our, in our de general data collection in general. And I think that there are two really amazing uh, solutions I've seen out there. One is by my hero and friend David Feinberg at Geisinger, who has implemented this astounding diabetic program where he's trying to treat diabetes by giving people food and the right food, not wondering about their insulin regimens, but what their food and exercise regimens are. And you should have David on here just to talk about that and the many other brilliant things he's doing. The second is the stuff that Google's doing and really helping trying to get insights into people's general patterns of what they're doing and how they're doing it without ever invading their personal space or their personal information, but trying to say, how can we reach out as a public service, not as a, uh, as a business, to help facilitate health for people in a, in a really important way beyond the way you normally think of it. And, and not just that it's an app that you go to because healthcare sucks, but because it's a way to join together across the aisle to make healthcare better. So, wow, that, that's a lot. Um, so many questions I've been writing down as you've been speaking. Um, so, so, first, your, your story, by the way, uh, of your hernia and the uh, hospital and, and particularly the post-hospital 
you know, I don't even know what to make of that. I mean, here you are, you know, an expert in so much of this and, you know, you were lost. Uh, and like you said, if you didn't have uh, your own, you know, knowledge of the healthcare system, your wife's knowledge and capability uh, as an expert, as a provider, uh, you know, you, you're probably right. You would have been back in the ED, I, you know, and so how how would you, and you mentioned you're working with, uh, obviously you're in Agilent now, how, what would you do to, to make sure that this sort of experience, uh, that patients wouldn't have this experience? How, how would you go about fixing it? What's the answer to that? Well, you know, the, the typical answer would be education. And, and absolutely that's part of it. How do you educate the patient and their family better? How do you give them more information? How do you give them more access to easy websites to, 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 uh, um, um, access and, and understand. But education only goes so far. And when I was thinking about myself in that post-surgical time, the last thing I wanted to do was go on my iPad. I just wanted to feel better. I just wanted to have relief. I just wanted to somebody say, don't worry, it's okay. So I think that the second part and, and what we've done at Agilon and what I've um, uh, coached other delivery systems to do is have a better care management follow-up. And it's not simply a phone call to say, honey, is everything okay? But it's uh, empowerment with how to manage your pain medicines afterwards, how much to drink and how to know when to drink, when you're too constipated or not constipated, what do you do about it, and have somebody personally reach out to make sure things are going okay. In many of the patients we have at Agilon, it's, it's something called care transitions. And that care transitions is having somebody go to their home and not a home health visit that simply sort of says, I check a box and I do a procedure, but somebody to say, are the, are, the, are the right medicines in the bottle next to you? Are you taking them the right amount? Are you keeping track and counting them? Have you been monitoring your bowel movements or your urination or things like that? Are we helping you solve for the right um, um eating or the right times to eat or the right liquids to push and get really personal with that patient to help them navigate that because as I learned in medical school early on, no, no question is a stupid question. If you don't ask, if you don't reach out, if you don't try to assess, you're never going to know. And so I think that that is really critically important and it's not, and, and not everybody in the healthcare system needs that. You know, again, 20% of patients are driving 80% of the cost. People talk all the time about prevention, 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 and I'm all about prevention, and, you know, that's why I go, that's why I run 40 miles a week, you know, it's prevention. How do I stay away from myself, mm -hmm. right? But more importantly, if we don't attack and, and really um, intervene on the 80% spend of the 20% of seniors and the 5% of everybody else to turn around that in a quality and fiscally responsible way, we'll never have enough resources to spend on prevention. So our first obligation is to concentrate on those with the with chronic illness and the greatest needs and reduce the total cost of care and improve the total quality of care that they get because then we'll have lots and lots and lots of dollars left over to truly invest in prevention in a much more meaningful way than we right. do now. If we were to achieve results of some of the delivery systems that I've been lucky enough to be part of, whether that be Agilon or Healthcare Partners for Bob Margolis or other similar rare situations, mm -hmm. um, we would literally save a trillion dollars from the American healthcare budget first year of operation. I, you know, I, I, I believe you would save quite a bit. Let me, let me just go back to something. I'm going to go back to earlier when you described your six pillars and especially the, you know, the uh, fourth and fifth and sixth, this home care program, the uh, or home visit program, the high risk clinic and the, and the intensive care management. Which you know, as you pointed out, is is you know sixty dollars per member per month. Uh, uh, the so significant um, investment. Uh, the the question I have for you, Stuart, and this is what I'm concerned about as I look at the path we're on. We're on this sort of incremental path of uh, of payment moving to a greater risk based uh, contracts. But you know, it, it's hard. I I don't see at what point. Are people going to make these kinds of investments? Uh, it, it seems the incremental approach, I, I worry about it because you're, you're still pulled in the direction of fee-for-service 
and of hospital-based care and intensive-based care, and you don't have enough of an incentive to move to this direction. And it takes not only resource, it takes time to build this, there are processes, technologies. So it's a multi-year effort, multi-multi-year effort to, to, to build your four, five, and six uh, model and even to turn around your first three pillars. And so I just don't get it, how that's going to happen. And, and the transition just seems to me to be schizophrenic. Um, so, so could you comment? Am I, am I off base about this? How, how do you see this whole kind of macro transition happening? And what do you think about that? So um, I don't think it takes years and years and years um, to do this. Um, when we've been working with new delivery systems like Dr. Bill Wolf and uh, Central Health Primary Care Physicians or uh, as we're working with uh, Dr. Nas Dagestani and Dr. Norm Chenven at Austin Regional Clinic or our other operations in Hawaii and, and California, it's, a, it's about a year of intensive work. Um, you have to have something to start with, but, but it's not years and years and years. But you can't gradually go into risk uh, because the amount of the investment to build the infrastructure it takes is too significant that you can do it on the margin. That's why these inherent shared risk pools and ACOs are going to just nibble at the margin and then die because it's never going to gain the success of truly integrated delivery systems. It'll improve where they're at, but frankly, the, the current results of most delivery systems are so um, mediocre. I don't mean that we're giving mediocre care, but mediocre in far as the true quadruple aim, that an improvement is relatively easy. Um, it's where you want to devote yourself to this, towards this entire system transformation that's significantly harder. And so um, I think that the only way to do this is to start get enough, to get enough proof points across the United States where people are willing to invest the money up front, build the infrastructure that you alluded to, uh, keep the, ensure that to keep the doctors whole and the patients getting better care, not ever anything but better care, to, to be able to get there. And if you have enough confidence in building the infrastructure to take care of the most chronically ill and the most frail, and you actually build it, you will come up with financial, better financial results on, new, on a new set of economics and therefore be able to prove that you can, that, that higher quality is really lower cost. So, so, so let me see if I understand what you're saying, though. It, it seems to me, this goes back to what you said at the beginning of our conversation. It seems to me that what you're saying is you need to go full risk. You need to, to go global risk in order to make have the funding to make the investments to build the system in a timely way to get the results you need that any other way is just not going to give you enough um, you know power to do that and so uh, and funding to do that so is that what you're saying? Yeah and, and you have to be a provider system you know there are some um, transformative insurance companies and some leaders of transformative insurance companies that have done really exceptional stuff. And so examples of that is Kristen Miranda at, at Aetna. Um, uh, what we did at SCAN as a social HMO and, and other, other situations like that, what the old Pacific Care used to do that, that tried to do stuff, but they were never at the provider level. And they all started to resort to, to ensuring that there could be enough global risk provider organizations to be able to do this transformation as a proof point that it's the collaboration and partnership between the insurance company as a financial institution, as a marketing institution, as a compliance and sales institution to truly support doctors being at the front line to transform care to make it work. So, so it, it is significantly easier with a physician group uh, to be able to do this. Um, I think that hospitals, as they transform the health systems, are able to do that as well, but it's just inherently more difficult because the health system or the hospital system still thinks about filling the hospital bed more than, you know, uh, the transformation of the delivery system. And they sort of, and they sort of are a little bit, um, uh, limited by, by their history more than their vision. Um, and it's only exceptional hospital leaders that can get there. So people like 
Jim May, um, people like Rick Gelfillan, um, people like uh, Patrick Sushong, Dr. Patrick Sushong, who are trying to do this and make hospitals expense centers uh, can can make a difference. Mm -hmm. But it but it is inherently really difficult. I've recently come across a couple of leaders of delivery systems um, uh, in New York and Chicago. The one who jumps out most prominently to me is Dr. Chris Smith, Christopher Smith, who's the head of Northwell Population Health, where he's trying to say the the idea and the vision of becoming a population health delivery system overrides any other premise and that, you know, the old system is going to go away, so how do we go where the puck is going, not where it is? And I think that as long as you start to get people like that visioning the future, you're good. And then partnerships. I mean, part of what we did at Agilon was we find anchor group delivery systems, physician groups or hospitals or both, who really want to transform, but they neither have the know-how nor the willingness to proactively invest at the front end, nor the willingness to take the downside at the back end to make this transformation. But if they have a partner that can say, we will make the front end investment, we will take the back end downside, and we will fish with you, not just teach you to fish, we're seeing almost unlimited people to say, yeah, this is the right thing and we want to do this, and we understand the quality and economic value to this, so let's try. And that's really optimistically um, encouraging for, I think, where healthcare is going. And that was going to be a question. You know, I think you, you in part answered one question, Ad, which is, what is holding institutions back? Uh, you know, we have large uh, hospital-based integrated delivery networks. Most, most of them are hospital-based. Uh, and uh, they, they've been, you know, physician practices that have been uh, uh, purchased by, you know, hospital systems, and you get these large IDNs. So, you know, what, number one, or part A of the question is, what's holding them back? And, you, you know, the, the, the two big three are barriers. And secondly, you know, do you have examples yet of the model that you outlined with these six pillars? Do you, do you, is there a group out there that's, that's actually built this, accomplished this? Or are you in that process right now? Um, so, uh, there are examples of people who have done that. Um, uh, we did that at the old healthcare partners under Dr. Bar Margolis. Um, and that was how we lived and breathed and ran the organization for 33 years. And every place in there was these six pillars. Um, uh, that we're doing this in Agilon in the geographies that we're in and in the new geographies we're going to. There's people like Dr. Bill Wolf who started doing this even without the assistance and partnership with an Agilon, so there are. Uh, Dr. Mark Hoffing out in Palm Springs under the, at Desert and Oasis uh, Medical Group and IPA is probably the best physician operator in the United States, and he's done this to perfection. Uh, there's probably not a better delivery system that I know of anywhere, and, and that's a great example. And he's had the support of Dr. Richard Merkin to allow him to do this and, and help promulgate it for other parts of their delivery system. Um, Sharp uh, started under Jerry Penzo and, and then has continued under current leadership, has done this. Uh, Caremore has done this under Lieber Lesson um, uh, in the early years prior to their um, uh, new affiliations. Uh, so Lieber is a true visionary, not as a clinician, but as an operator. Um, so I think that there really are places that are doing this, and now there are places that are anxious and willing to step up to do this in partnerships um, uh, to proceed and, and get to that level of excellence. And I think hopefully it becomes like a tsunami and it, and it really carries forward as proof points and confidence. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this is just lack of confidence, like, oh, my God, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, where does the money come from? Um, and and a, a lot of it, to be honest, is, is I hate to say this, is greed. You know, everybody wants to keep their share and grow it and not and, and not realize that everybody has to give a little to make this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, thank you for, for, you know, being straightforward in answering that question. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm a I'm a big fan in sort of going to where there are exceptions and seeing how it works and how they've accomplished and, you know, learning from those exceptions. And it sounds like you, you have quite a few. Uh, at, at your fingertips. 
Um, and so I think it's important for people to know this isn't just a, you know, theoretical vision that this is actually, you know, uh, this is a model that's been time proven. Um, you know, you mentioned before, and I know we have to probably wrap up in the next five or 10 minutes. You mentioned before people don't understand population health. How would you, in a kind of a, give a brief definition to someone? And let's say you were talking to, uh, to my 11-year-old son. How, how would you explain, you know, and actually I'm asking you for real because my son asked me, Dad, what do you do? And I try to explain to him what population health is. So how would you explain to Jacob what population health is? Um, well, I think that there's two answers to that. One is what people call it, and one is what I think it really is. Um, I think people call just about everything population health these days because they want, because it's the hot term, it's the um, right thing to be doing, and so you can have a um, a diabetic glucose monitoring program, and that's population health. Uh, I guess, but probably not really. I think real population health is saying that you're responsible for the city or the community or the county that you live in as a actual provider of care and you're responsible for every aspect of their health or darn near every aspect of their health. You're responsible for the quality, you're responsible for the economics, and you're responsible for all of the care, not the pediatric care, not the geriatric care, not the diabetic care, but the prevention, the chronic disease management, the hospitalization, their behavioral health, and every aspect that goes into that fabric of care. Because only when you're truly responsible for that community and their health care that, that you can achieve success. And the other part of population health is you're responsible for their care even when they're not in front of you. You're responsible for connecting the dots of care when they're at home, when they're having a hard time on the weekend, when they're sleeping at night, what their habits are, and what leads to them either achieving improved care, excellent health, or not such good health and not such good care, and changing that. And, 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 and that has to be done as a partnership. That has to be all in, and that has to be able to pull together the entire fabric of the patient, their family, and their community, and what they're doing, as well as the care you're delivering. And unless you could do that, you're not really doing population health. That's uh, that's a good answer. Um, let me ask you this: This is a model. This is a model that uh, has been time tested, and uh, your the six pillars you discussed. So I, I hear that kind of um, uh, you know that model. It's 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 uh, you know pretty pretty uh, concrete. But then I also see that you're you're. You work with Google as uh, you know their physician advisor and, and and research. So how is how is the new sort of digital technologies and you know machine learning and analytics and all the stuff that Google has been involved with? And I assume you're familiar with some of it, given your role. How how are you bringing in? the technology to enable this uh, time-tested model? Well, I, I, uh, with full disclosure, um, we really don't talk about too much that's going on in Google until it's really public. So I can't really answer that question uh, um, directly. All I can say is that Google is trying to partner with leading healthcare delivery systems to pull together their version of the five pillars of care to make it meaningful in an organized fashion. And, and so those things are making patients' lives better, making doctors' lives better, having better predictive analytics to be able to predict what the future is, having better algorithms that are based on evidence to support both providers and patients to get best quality care, and being able to read things, uh, pictures, words, things like that, so that people can get assistance from advanced technology to make it better. 
and that in fact doing that in support and partnership with healthcare institutions to uh, achieve better healthcare results is is their goal and the goal is a greater goal than economics or products but actually trying to make a contribution to healthcare and and I think we'll see in the future what that what that really looks like but it's um and using machine learning to actually continue to advance and make it better every day somebody uses it and every interaction that people have with it so it really is advanced technology but it's technology to support improve care not replace it mm-hmm. got it no that's that's helpful so let me i'm gonna i'm gonna be respectful i know of your time and you've got an, another appointment coming up let me ask you uh sort of a closing question about yourself and you know about what you know what makes you you and and i guess there are a couple of questions i've been wondering about um what what well let me ask this what what sort of heuristic what kind of advice were you given or sort of you know what what what's your mantra what what sort of is your guiding star uh that sort of you know when you get in the thick of things and i know you you do get in the thick of things uh what what's what helps you sort of keep uh, on the path that you're on in terms of of where you want to go? Um, I grew up poor in a poor neighborhood. I was the first person in my entire extended family that went to college. Well, actually, I had one other cousin, but n- nobody besides that. Um, I saw the social needs and saw. Healthcare having the most meaningful mission to actually help those social needs of a population to make a difference. Uh, I see the suffering around me and the selfishness and, and, and the importance of healthcare to everybody's life. It's almost a quarter of our entire spend in our national budget. Um, it's what keeps people going every day. And I'm so privileged and lucky to have had the chance to go to medical school, even as a third career, even if it was a roundabout way to go there, that I, it, that I need to pay it forward. I, I feel it's this incredible privilege and honor to have become a doctor, that what I get to do is um, um, very special, and I need to honor that. And I think what keeps me going is trying to find whatever small ways I can contribute to make a difference and, and, and ensure that our kids and our kids' kids um, ha- have a future uh, and health care. That my daughter, who's in, uh, at University of Pennsylvania Medical School, um, that she has a career that she can contribute meaningfully and she wants to devote it to the Latino population. Um, and that I see my wife and what she does every day, and it's just transformative. And I see what my friends need and, and the good that, that, that all the people that I'm lucky enough to work with at Agilon do every day and the meaningfulness of their work. And I just feel lucky to be part of that. Wow. Stuart, um, boy, I think if uh, more health care leaders had that, uh, we would be in a different place today. So I, I want to thank you for being so, so honest and, and sharing uh, that with us, with me and with our audience. Um, and, um, I'll, i any other kind of closing comment you have for, for me or for the audience, any sort of take home message? Uh, I mean, what you just said was more than enough for me, but I'm just wondering if there's anything left that you want to say to, uh, to, uh, the creating a new healthcare podcast audience before you, you sign off. Well, I think we're just frankly lucky to have folks like you who are devoting part of your career as a brilliant physician to do stuff like this, that we have to get the word out there, that there has to be a different way, that we have to work together, that we can't take sides. There's so much animosity these days in politics and in the world. And and if we don't get this together, we're not going to have anything left. It is our last chance. If, if providers don't pull together, we don't have a second vote. Um, it's, it's, it's our opportunity to make a difference where it's going to be dictated to us and to patients what the future is going to look like. And, and patients have to make a difference. They can't just blame physicians and they can't just sort of say, well, you know, it's out of my control. 
but they have to find the right advocates and, and, and doctors have to get besides themselves. They have to get out of their own way and understand why they did this. And, and if, if everybody doesn't, we're going to fail. But given what I see out there, it's incredibly optimistic. And I see the sun shining brightly on a, on a better healthcare system and the answer in front of us. The, the people always talk about innovation. I think it's not really about innovation. It's doing the basics brilliantly. And we have to get back to the basics. We have to do the basics incredibly well and be very responsible how we do that. And then let the innovations come from that. But if we don't do the basics brilliantly and think about what people really need and want, both the professionals and most of all patients and their families, will fail. So it's That's the great. brilliant basics. Well, Stuart, I, I really wish you the best of luck in the work you're doing. I, I hope that more people, and I'm hoping that this podcast will spread your message and uh, more people join you in uh, building the, the basics around good patient care and supporting providers and being able to provide that in a uh, meaningful and sustainable way. And, uh, you know, again, I want to thank our guests for being part of this podcast. Um, uh, these are the folks who are out there every single day doing the hard work of taking care of our patients or directly supporting those who are taking care of patients. So uh, thank you all for joining me. And uh, until we meet again on creating a new health care, I wish you good health and good living. Thank you. Thank you.